Take your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 26, if you will, for tonight's study. Leviticus chapter 26. I trust that you've had a good week. Uh, it's been a, a good week here at Grandview Baptist Church. Several things have been accomplished. We're in the process of going through the county to get uh, a portable classroom delivered in the middle of July and put together. And uh, I think we finally did the last steps uh, as of, uh, let's see, as of yesterday. So hopefully that will go without a glitch. We are still in the process of getting a conditional use hearing uh, for our family center. <clears throat> We've already had the hearing but we will have um, the notes put out on that and any conditions that they have. And, and so pray about that, that all would go well there. We're trusting the Lord for that, that all would go well. We're in Leviticus chapter 26. I've got the first 13 verses I want to read to you. So I'm going to uh, have you remain uh, seated, if you will. Whereas normally I would have you stand, but it's a longer passage. And again, I'd like to take a little time and uh, go through the passage and then explain a few things. We're talking about God's promised blessings, God's promised blessing. And I want you to see that in Leviticus chapter 26, God is saying, if you will do these things... I will give you my promised blessings. And he'll, he'll give that uh, down through verse 13. So the verse three verses are God's stipulations, if you will. And he's saying to the nation of Israel, if you'll do these things, then from verse four to verse 13, God's saying, this is what I will do for you. And then in verse 15 through almost the rest of the chapter, but going down to verse 43, he's going to say, now, I've told you if you do that, here's the blessing, but if you don't do that, well, here's what's going to happen to you. This is the results of disobedience. And you're going to see one catastrophe after another, after another, after another, after another. So let's have a word of prayer and then we'll get right into the scripture for tonight. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this chance to be here, this time to gather together, assemble as believers. And Lord, we've come to hear from you. Where two or three are gathered in thy name, there you are in the midst. And Lord, you always honor your word. If we'll just preach it and present it, you will honor your word. And the Bible says your word will not return void, but it will accomplish that for which you've sent it. And Lord, I believe you're sending your word for every single one of us tonight. And it will not return void. If we have ears to hear and apply the truth of what you're giving us tonight, it will be so beneficial to us. Lord, seven times in the book of Revelation, you say to the seven churches to hear what the Spirit of God saith to the churches. He that hath ears, let him hear what the Spirit saith to the churches. Lord, I pray tonight we would have ears to hear what the Spirit of God wants to say to every one of us in church tonight and those who are joining us online, I pray that they too would have an open heart to the Word of God and to the Spirit of God and that you would take this message that you've laid on my heart and have it be a part of all of our lives and help us to practice its truths, Lord, and I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So in this passage, we look at the uh, promised blessings. Now, uh, we're in Leviticus 26. How in the world did I get over there? Well, I've been doing some study in the last uh, few weeks, actually, 
on this very truth. And uh, it was just something I studied uh, maybe three, four weeks ago, and I kept coming back to it and back to it. And the last two days, I've studied it a lot more, and I thought, that is a amazing truth. And so I'm going to share that with you tonight. So I'm going over this passage, then I'm going to stop and we'll back up and go over a few verses we've not read through. We start in verses 1 through 3, we see the prerequisites of God. And the Bible says, "...ye shall make you no idols or graven image, neither rear you up a standing image." Neither shall ye set up any image of stone in your land to bow down unto it. So in other words, God's very clear that God doesn't want any image of him or any other deity in our homes, in our churches, no graven images. Keep in mind, that's one of the Ten Commandments, right? not to have any graven image and not to bow down and not to have any God before me. And so God is against that. Now, I go to places where sometimes in restaurants, they've got uh, images there and they're burning incense to the image. I've gone, uh, when I was a child, I went with my uh, uh, good friend to his church, which happened to be a Catholic church. I never... Uh, uh, got on my knees, stood up, got on my knees, stood up. It was just down, back and forth, and back and forth. And that's when it was in Latin. I didn't have a clue what they were doing, and I'm just bending on my knees, coming up again. And I kept saying, what's all those statutes? And he'd say, well, that's, that's uh, Mary, and that's so-and-so, and that's... And you have these statutes. And I'm looking at him like... Do you not know what the Bible says about that? I mean, you know, as a good Baptist, I read my Bible, you know, and I know what the Bible says about having graven images and yet having it in church? No. Don't have it at home, don't have it at church, don't have it at other places. So he goes down in verse 2, um, Ye shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. So the first, no graven image. Secondly, keep God's Sabbath. Uh, give honor to his sanctuary. Reverence his sanctuary. Thirdly, if ye walk in my statutes and keep my commandments and do them. So he is, he's not going through the whole Ten Commandments. He's just saying, listen, don't bow down to other images. Why would he do that? Because he's taking God's people, you know, Moses is taking them to the promised land. And what's he going to find in the land of Canaan? Everybody's worshiping other gods. And every one of them have images of their gods that they bow down and worship. Now... I know sometimes as Christians, you know, there's some Christians shouldn't have this in your home, shouldn't have that in your home. Uh, but if you ever start bowing down to that image or uh, that Christmas tree or that television or that other item in your home, if you ever start bowing down, you got a problem. That's the time you want to certainly get rid of it. But uh, I, as I've told people, maybe they didn't want to have a Christmas tree. Don't have one. Just don't tell me not to have one. If I ever bow down to it, I think I'll have a problem, but I haven't yet. Well, I do bow down to it to pour water under it. I'm sorry. I, I, but I'm not worshiping, okay? I'm not worshiping. So in verses 1 through 3, we have the prerequisites. And then we have the blessings that will follow. Because it starts in verse 4, then. And here it says... Then I will give you rain in due season, and the land shall yield her increase. Boy, that's Oregon. God has sure blessed us this year. Rain in due season. So much of the Southwest is going through, you know, a drought, and um, we have been blessed of the Lord. 
And we've been hoping some of it would go over there and bless them a little bit. And the trees of the field shall yield their fruit, and your threshing shall reach unto the vintage, and the vintage shall reach unto reach unto the sowing time, and ye shall eat your bread to the full, and dwell in your land safely. Now, what that simply means is uh, the harvest is going to give you enough to, to go through sowing time, and it's going to be enough to go through reaping time. So your, your harvest is going to be enough to last you till next year's harvest. Oh, that's a good thing, right? Not just a few months, but it's going to give you so much, you have enough store of food, it's going to see you through the next harvest. Well, that's God's blessing. In verse 6, and he says, And I will give peace in the land, and ye shall lie down, and none shall make you afraid. And I will rid evil beasts out of the land, neither shall the sword go through your land. Wow. God says, I'm going to give you peace. And your enemies aren't going to cause a problem. Wild beasts aren't going to cause a problem. Uh, invaders aren't going to be a problem. The sword's not going to be a problem. Uh, I'm going to give you peace and take care of you. Because they've done verses 1 through 3. You've done this, then God says, I'll do that. In verse 7, And ye shall chase your enemies and they shall fall before you by the sword. God grants victory to his children. And then in verse 8, And five of you shall chase a hundred, and a hundred of you shall put ten thousand to flight, and your enemies shall fall before you by the sword. Now that's an amazing thing that takes place there. And what it's saying is God blesses in such a way that he gives the nation of Israel something I never heard of until about 25 years ago, and it's called synergy. And when I first heard that, I thought, what in the, what? Synergy? And I thought, I know what energy is. I know what center is. I don't know what synergy, but anyway, synergy means that uh, if you put two horses together, their pulling power is greater than the sum of both horses individually. And so that means as God's people, as a group, we are far more effective for the cause of Christ than any one of us are individually. We could take all of our individual efforts at it together and it would not equal what we together as a church can do. And that's a wonderful miracle of the New Testament church. God will bless. And he gives an illustration. He says, five of you will chase a hundred. Now, for you math wizards out there, how many times does five go into a hundred? You're right, twenty. And so... Uh, it's equal to one twentieth. So one person uh, is effective against 20. But then he goes on to say, and a hundred of you shall chase 10,000. Well, if you have a hundred, how many people per person are they chasing down? It's not 20. It's a hundred. A hundred times a hundred is 10,000. And so, see, you have uh, 20 times uh, five or is equal to uh, the hundred. Five of you shall chase a hundred. So every one is chase, can chase down 20, but a hundred of you can chase down 10,000. That means every one of those hundred is now able to chase down another hundred. That means the more of God's people, and by the way, that's why we want God's people to be faithful in church, because the more we can have assembled, the more we can do for the cause of Christ. And that's what it's all about. It's not just to see how, how many people can be in a building or how many people in a church. It's that God makes us more effective. 
God takes my life and your life and others' lives and he blends us together for the cause of Christ and he helps us to become more effective together than we ever were individually. And that's a powerful truth. And and God blesses our lives, quite frankly, just because we assemble together, we are bettered because of that. And then he goes on in verse 9, For I will have respect unto you and will make you fruitful and multiply you and establish my covenant with you. So this is God's promise to make them a fruitful people. And in verse 10, And ye shall eat old store and bring forth the old because of the new And I will set my tabernacle among you, and my soul shall not abhor you. Oh, that's a wonderful promise. Verse 12. And I will walk among you, and will be your God, and ye shall be my people. That's God's promise to the nation of Israel. In verse 13. I am the Lord your God, which brought you forth out of the land of Egypt, that ye should not be their bondsmen, bondmen, and I have broken the bands of your yoke and made you go upright. Now keep in mind, where did the Israelites come from? They were slaves in Egypt. They were burden bearers. And when you bear a burden, what are you? you you're slump-shouldered. You're burdened down. You're carrying heavy loads. And God says, I'll make you to walk upright. What does that mean? He takes our burden off. What does the Bible tell us in the New Testament? Casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. As Christians, God wants to bear our burdens too, right? We're not to be burden bearers. We're to cast all of our care, all of our burdens on the Lord, and He will carry that for us. Why? He wants His children to walk upright and be able to walk free of being in bondage. God doesn't want His children in bondage. So, in verses 1 through 3, we have the prerequisites for God's blessing. In verses 4 through 13, we find the blessings that will follow. Now, in verse 14 through verse 43, we have the punishments that God says will occur. And it's just one horrendous thing after another, after another, after another. And he says, if you will not hearken, if you will not turn around, if having done that, he said, if you will not listen, then, then I'll multiply it seven times. Wow. God's pretty serious about getting the attention of his children. Very serious about it. I wish I had time to read all that. I'm not going to take that time. But God is very serious about getting the attention You say, well, I'm saved. I've trusted Christ as my Savior. Well, well, praise the Lord for that. You're going to heaven. Well, yeah, but I'm just going to live my life like I want to. I wouldn't do that. Because God loves you enough to get your attention. And that's what he's saying to the nation of Israel. I love you enough to get your attention. And if I can't get it lightly, I'll get it the hard way. And then we see God's compassion will not leave them. We come all the way down to verse 44, 45, and 46. And let me read those three verses for you. And the Bible says, And yet, for all that, when they be in the land of their enemies, I will not cast them away, neither will I abhor them to destroy them utterly, and to break down my covenant with them. For I am the Lord their God. 
But I will for their sakes remember the covenant of their ancestors, whom I brought forth out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the heathen, that I might be their God. I am the Lord. These are the statutes and judgments and laws which the Lord made between him and the children of Israel in Mount Sinai by the hand of Moses. Having gone through all the things that God says I'll do to get your attention, he said, and when you're in the, when you're prisoners once again in the enemy's country because of your transgressions, I won't forsake you. I just won't forsake you. Because you see, I made some promises to your ancestors. You know, the Bible tells us we have exceeding great and precious promises that are found in the Word of God. Amen? That's a wonderful thing. So we have that. Now, having gone through that, let me take the next uh, 20 minutes or so and share with you in this passage of Scripture some things that I think are most notable and, and something that I've studied out. I'm going to read these verses mentioned uh, one of the phrases that's found over and over again, one of the words, actually. And then, and then I want us to talk about that word and what it means. In chapter 26, verse 21, the Bible says, And if ye walk contrary, and let me stop there, that's the word. And if ye walk contrary unto me, and will not hearken unto me, I will bring seven times more plagues upon you according to your sins. Look at verse 23. And if ye will not be reformed by me by these things, but will walk contrary unto me, the word again, contrary, Leviticus verse 26, 24 then will I also walk contrary unto you and will punish you yet seven times for your sins. Verse 27, And if ye will not for all this hearken unto me, but walk contrary unto me, verse 28, then I will walk contrary unto you also in fury, and I, even I, will chastise you seven times for your sins. And I've read five different times where the word contrary is used. I've got two more. Verse 40. If they shall confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers with their trespass, which they trespass against me, and that also they have walked contrary unto me, and then verse 41, and that I also have walked contrary unto them, and have brought them into the land of their enemies, if then their uncircumcised heart be humbled, and they then accept of the punishment of their iniquity. Now, seven different verses I've used that word Contrary. Contrary. Seven different times found in chapter 26. Now, I think most of us would say, well, yeah, I know, I know the word contrary. I've raised teenagers. I know what that means. <laughs> I've raised children. I know what it is when they're trying to be contrary. I, I understand that. Or you wives say, yeah, I know, I married a husband. I know what contrary. <laughs> well, you know, sometimes it's, it's like that. Except, as I've studied this word out, it, it doesn't mean what I thought it meant. Contrary to me is an active, very actively engaged in disobedience. If I'm walking what I would say contrary to God, then I am very actively against what God has for my life. I'm walking 
contrary. And I think according to English, that's how any of us would see it. But as I studied that word out a little bit more, I found out that that is not exactly what it's meaning. What first gave me a clue to that is I was reading uh, an article written by a Jewish man, and he made reference to this passage of Scripture, and he gave it a definition I'd never heard of before, and I said, well, that's crazy, until I started checking out different commentaries and what it means in Hebrew, and found out that, oh, it could very well mean exactly that. So I want to read to you what different people have said about this phrase, this word, contrary. John Gill was a famous Baptist pastor in London. He pastored the Metropolitan Baptist Tabernacle uh, right before Charles Haddon Spurgeon pastored. John Gill pastored for 60 years as the pastor. Charles Haddon Spurgeon pastored about 45, and he had the shortest ministry in four generations of pastors. They thought he was a novice, only 45 years. Whoa. Well, I'm going to have 38 here uh, this year. John Gill says, If ye walk contrary unto me... To his mind and will, to his laws, commandments, and ordinances, show no regard unto them by a walk and conversation agreeably to them, but neglecting and breaking them continually or by chance. As the Targum of Jonathan says, which is uh, basically a Jewish commentary on Hebrew, not with any intention and design to obey the Lord and to honor and glorify Him, but in a careless, indifferent manner, having no regard to the law of God, not only now and then as it happens, act accordingly, but having no concern for the honor and glory of God. Literally what he's saying is, To walk contrary to the Lord simply means to live your life with no regard of God. No concern for God. So you're not making God's law your enemy. You're just not thinking about God. You're just living your life without thinking about God. Joseph Benson was a commentator, and his, in his commentary, he says, If ye walk contrary to me, the Hebrew, carry from karat, is translated, it happened. If ye walk with me by accident, or by chance, or as it happens, The ancient versions, however, favor that translation, according to which rendering the word implies uh, continuing to go against God by not thinking about God. The Jews follow the sense and expound it of those who, when they are afflicted by God, look on their sufferings as casual contingent things, rather than as divine chastisement, to correct, to amend, to bring them to repentance. Seven times more plagues, I will visit your obstinate impenitence, impertinence with new and more grievous plagues. In other words, bad things, when bad things happen to us, we think, oh, well, that's coincidence. Huh, I guess that just happened. With no thought, I wonder if God's trying to tell me something. Now, I'm not saying every 
bad thing that happens to us, God's trying to get our attention. But I am saying anytime things happen to us, the first thought ought to be, I wonder if God's trying to tell me something. But what happens is we go through life having one thing after another thing after another thing and never even think, I wonder if God is trying to get my attention. That's living by happenstance. That's living contrary to God. And it's contrary, not that we're actively engaged against God. It's contrary because as a believer, we understand that God wants to be engaged in every single area of our lives. And when we're not thinking that, we're living contrary to God's plan for our lives. And all of a sudden I thought, boy, that's powerful, isn't it? Because see, I don't think any of us are going to be actively against God. But I think sometimes we could go several days without even thinking about God and His purpose for my life and His will for me and I wonder if he wants me to talk to someone today. I wonder if he wants to direct my path. I wonder if he, I wonder what God has for me today. If we're not careful, we just live our lives with an attitude like, que sera, sera, whatever will be, will be. The old Doris Day song, you know. A lot of young people are, what are you, what are you, oh, never mind. You've got to be old even to get it. But just living life as it comes with no regard that God is involved in our everyday lives. You know, Paul said it this way. Even the Greek philosophers believed that in him we live and breathe and have our being. Even the Greeks understood that. In him we live and breathe and have our being. God, God is everywhere. And he wants us to think about him because he's got a plan for our lives. Matthew Henry said it this way. I will walk contrary to you with the froward uh, he will wrestle. When God in his providence thwarts the designs of a people which they, though well laid, crosses their purposes, breaks their measures, blasts their endeavors, and disappoints their expectations, then he walks contrary to them. Note, there is nothing got by striving with God Almighty. There's nothing got by striving against God Almighty. For he will break either the heart or the neck of those who contend with him. He breaks our heart or he breaks our neck. And brings them either to repentance or to ruin. And that depends whether you yield or whether you fight against God. I will walk at all adventures with you. So some read, all covenant loving kindness shall be forgotten, and I will leave you to common providence. If you'll live your life without me, God is saying, I'll let your life be led without me. And let's see how it turns out. Those that cast off God deserves that he should cast off them continually obstinate. The judgment should increase yet more upon them if they first sensible tokens of God's displeasure do not attain therein to humble and reform them. Then I will punish you seven times more and again I will bring seven times more plagues. I will punish you yet seven times. And I, even I, will chastise you seven times for your sins. Just quoting different passages found in this same chapter. 
Now, I made reference to the Targum of Jonathan, which is basically a commentary by Jews on Old Testament law. So it's not a Christian perspective, but it is at least a priestly, a Jewish priestly perspective of what the Hebrew is saying to the nation of Israel. And he says the second ironclad condition, the absolute inverse of the promise of blessing is spelled out not in 12 verses, but in 32 harsh painful, harrowing verses, graphically spelling out devastating hardships and unimaginable catastrophes that will befall Israel should she fail to follow God's statutes and walk in his ways. And should Israel abandon of God's commandment, devolve from a simple lack of focus to an attitude of contempt toward God's way, then God promises he shall reciprocate accordingly. And if through these you will not be chastened to return to me and you will continue to treat me. And here's the word they use to translate contrary. And if you continue to treat me happenstance, happenstance. If you'll continue to treat me as though things just happen, then I too will treat you as happenstance, contrary. I will again add seven punishments for your sins. Happenstance, he goes on to say, The word is repeated seven times in God's rebuke to Israel, and there is nothing more terrifying than God's promised response to an attitude of happenstance. Happenstance is just living without the awareness of God. God will act accordingly. Our world, our lives, our hopes, our dreams, our futures, all depend on God's caring for His creation. Every moment of our existence is made possible because God cares. God loves his creation. God loves mankind. God loves Israel. And God constantly busies himself with our well-being. Should God turn a blind eye and blithe eye to our troubles, then all is lost. If, if we don't have God's love and God's attention, we're hopeless. We're we're. You know, we're up the stream without a paddle. All is lost. This list of rebukes parade before us is just the beginning of our demise. God has a plan. His creation has a purpose. He has a plan and a purpose for Israel. And we can apply this to Christians. He has a plan and a purpose for humanity. From the moment God said, let there be light... His newborn creation was filled with purpose, with intent, with a direction. When God first fashioned man, he created him in his image. Man was invested with a purpose, a destiny, a rendezvous, a a relationship with God. It is man's freedom to choose which enables him to be filled with purpose. Man may not always choose correctly, but his choice, in his choice, he is exercising his God-given freedom of choice and his God-given power to pursue, intend, to invest meaning in his life. But to treat God so casually as to divest our lives of purpose, of meaning, of anything striving to do good or to acknowledge God is to abandon not only our own humanity, but it's to abandon God's plan for us. God's plan is we live with a constant awareness of his presence. And when we live without that, we're living by happenstance and we are contending with God's plan for our lives when when we're not thinking about him 
in our everyday, common, ordinary events of life. We are not simply rebelling against God. We are opting out altogether. It's not like we're fighting against God. We're just ignoring him. Now, Christians, that's what you and I know the world's doing, right? They're living their life without God. But what's bad for Christians is he's our father and we're his children. And for us to live our lives as though we're living without him, now that's more serious. God declares a fury of happenstance, a temptus of meaningless, an abject lack of purpose, of justice, of right or wrong, of humanity, of God's caring, let alone intervening in our lives when things go astray, when chaos becomes the norm and each day is darker than the day before, a world in which God no longer cares. Unimaginable. Now, let me sum it all together in a paragraph I wrote. We may feel that we are never contrary to God, but we are often careless in not seeing Him in everything. We can just happen through life if we're not careful. Now, I don't know about you, But that's easy for me to do. It's just, if I'm not careful, just, it doesn't mean I don't talk to him. Doesn't mean I don't read his, but if I'm not careful, I, I can go so long without thinking about God's plan for my life and how God wants to be involved in every area of my life and things can go wrong and I say, oh, well, that's unfortunate. And I never even stop to think sometimes, I wonder if God is trying to say something to me. Happenstance. Let's be careful to live our lives for the Lord and be constantly aware of his presence, his indwelling, his will for our lives, his plan for us. And we'll never be disappointing to God. We'll see God in everything when we live like that. Sometimes as believers will say, I don't know how an unsaved person goes and doesn't, doesn't look at a sunrise and think about God. And yet so many times I look at Mount Hood and think, well, the mountain's pretty today. Instead of look what God did. Look what God's done. Look what God's doing. I should say the challenge tonight is for my heart, and if it can fit your heart, I hope it will help as well. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. We're going to have a word of prayer, and then uh, we'll have people gather and pray for our teenagers. Heavenly Father, I pray that you'll speak to our hearts. I know it's so often... We can live our lives and find that we've not focused in on you. We've just been living without that constant awareness of your presence. Lord, please forgive us for that. We don't don't mean to do that. Lord, we get caught up in the cares of life. But Lord, we're warned in Scripture not to let that happen. And yet so many times we find that's the case. Father, would you take this message and for the next few days or weeks, would you help us to see you in everything? 
Would you help us to recognize your presence, your purpose, your plan for our lives in everything? Lord, I pray that you will. In Jesus' name I ask it. Amen. Let's all stand to our feet for a moment. And let God speak to your heart. I'm not sure how that truth affected you. I've shared how it affects me. But I hope it will be a help to all of us. God bless you. You may be seated. Can we have the teenagers come in, especially all of those who are going and, and for all the adults that are here? If you are going to the trip of Honduras, we're going to ask uh, all those individuals to come uh, and find a place around the altar. All of those who are going to Honduras, can we have you make your way down front? And if you would just sort of kneel over here. Let's have the ladies maybe over on this side and the guys over on this side. And ladies, if y'all could... uh, Uh, maybe um, separate just a little bit so that uh, a lady might be able to come and uh, pray with you. And and that would be helpful. Okay. These are teenagers that are going for a week on a mission trip. And I'm going to ask the men of our church if, if you would come and find one of these young men and and put your hand on their shoulder and have a word of prayer with them. And ladies, if you will come and find one of these young ladies and put your hand on them and pray that God would use them in a very special way. Uh, And I know that God will bless that and use that. And if all the Young men or young ladies are already being prayed for. Just stand there, and when they're done, then you take a time and you find someone to pray with because we want them to be covered in prayer. And, uh, and will you go ahead and start praying right now? Pray loud enough so they can hear what you're saying. When one's done praying, just another one take their place and pray. There's one available right there. Here's one to pray for right here. Whoops. Okay.
Right over here, someone can pray with Abelina. Right here's one to pray with, Barbara. You want to come right here, make your way? Okay, good. I just want to make sure everyone's got to pray for it. Have you got to pray with one? There you pray. You can pray for both of them. Others are still being prayed with, several of the ladies. And let's pray collectively as a church, as I pray, if you will. Father, these young lives are before us, and Lord, they're your children, and they know you as their Savior. And Lord, they want to be used of you. I pray you'll give them a wonderful trip, but let it be more than that. May they sense your hand a blessing upon their life. May they sense that you are using them. The creator is using his creation, his child. And Lord, I pray that they'll sense that and they'll see your guiding in their life. And Lord, may it be a time not only they're a blessing, but would you be a blessing to them? Would you share with them your plans, your will for their lives in these next few days? And I pray all of this, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Thank you, and you are dismissed.